Welcome to the ninth episode of the podcast. This is your proprietor, Tony Ortega, coming to you from an undisclosed location deep inside the interior of the Earth's crust, otherwise known as the Underground Bunker. We're so glad to be talking again this week to Mark Headley, who reached out to us after we posted a video that featured a man named Tommy Shearer. Mark had some interesting things that took us in a number of different directions, and well, let's just get right into it. Mark Headley, what a pleasure it is to have you back. Thanks for having me, man. Podcast, yeah. And what a bizarre reason this time. Um, Last time we talked about uh, David Miscavige moving to Florida and what that might mean for Scientology, all very serious, high-level stuff. This time... Um, recently at the bunker, we highlighted a couple of videos, um, one of them showing some children in Ireland being indoctrinated in Scientology very young, but we also uh, attached a video of a, a strange guy named Tommy Scherer. Uh, and one of my readers had brought this to my attention. Um, Tommy is a longtime Scientologist. He lives in Southern California. But he's originally from, uh, oh gosh, I forgot, somewhere else, back east. And he apparently has self-published some science fiction. And so he kind of says, I guess he's got a a small-time YouTube channel where he talks to his fans or whatever. And I guess at some point he mentioned Scientology and fans asked him about it. So he's gotten more vocal about it. And one of the things uh, that we noticed is he got very vocal vocal about critics of Scientology. Okie dokie. I've been asked to elaborate on the, uh, the concept of why, if Scientology is so great, like I say, and like I know, why is it being attacked? Why are so many people saying bad things about it? So I explained it a little. And this got him several thousand views. So now we thought, okay, this is this is probably worth pointing out. What we didn't expect was to hear from you that you actually knew this guy. So please help me understand the situation. Okay, so my family moved from Kansas City to Los Angeles in 1979. And when my... Um, Basically, my dad was in a band, and the band was going to make it big. So they had to move to Hollywood to do that. And um, one of the Bernie? guys... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. You didn't know that? I didn't know that. You know, Bernie... Oh, I, we, yeah. My dad, was, uh, my dad was a bass player oh. in, in a band called The Catch. And they actually... Um, they were gigging in L.A. for, I don't know, probably... From 1980, I'd say early 80s till, I don't know, probably 86, 87. And and we, so when we moved to Los Angeles, um, one of the band members, his name was, um, God, I'm getting so old, I'm starting to forget names. (laughs) Um, His name was Steve Smuck. That was actually his his legal name was Steve Smuck. Wow. Wow. And he knew my dad um, from Kansas. And and he used to go to my mom's uh, my mom had a my mom's parents had a farm and they he would go out to the farm. And I think this Steve guy actually um, might have uh, dated my mom before my dad did. Mm, and um, either way, the Steve Smuck guy was a Scientologist. And, and your and your father was he ever a Scientologist at all? I can't remember. Wasn't he never really got into it? Um, the the story goes that when my mom and dad moved to Los Angeles, and then they we were living with this Steve guy um, in Hollywood, and he kind of uh, tried to get my mom and dad into Scientology, and my mom was like all in, and my dad was like, I don't know, it seems kind of scammy, seems kind of seems like it might be a little bit of bullshit in there. And um, the story is that my mom said, well, if you're not going to go into Scientology, then we're going to have to get a divorce. And then that's when they broke up, like right, like pretty much right after we moved to Los Angeles, they split up. Okay. And um, 
So my dad kind of did a lot of, uh, he drove, he was a delivery driver. He worked at a, um, this, uh, big, uh, like music chain called music plus, which, uh, was like, uh, you know, uh, best buy for, you know, albums and cassettes and stuff like that. And then he eventually got into roofing and he worked at a roofing company called Sheer Roofing. And Tommy was the owner of Sheer Roofing. And even though my dad, my mom and my dad broke up um, and it was it was weird as a kid that they broke up, but it was even weirder that they always worked together. So my dad got a job at this roofing company and then my mom got a job at the roofing company. So um, my well, they might have been they might have been broken up, but they had kids. Right. I mean, how old were you at this time? uh, Six, seven yeah yeah okay but either way um my mom was a salesperson um, for the roofing company and my dad was a roofer and um they had a little um like uh, office i guess not really a shop but an office and it was right next to the complex the scientology big blue building down on fountain and it was actually directly across the street from um a uh, like a uh, hairdresser called Sheer Perfection. So, um, which I think you might know the Lynn, I think her name yeah. is Lynn. Lynn Campbell. Lynn That's Campbell. Lynn Campbell's shop. Right. And she used to cut my hair and my mom's hair and, uh, you know, uh, my sister's hair and stuff like that. And it was right across the street from Sheer Roofing. So you had Sheer Perfection and Sheer Roofing. Anyway, um, So, yeah, my dad worked for Tommy for many, many years. And then at some point, um, I I, I so remember this because it was it was it's really kind of it's silly. But they had this roofing, this new roofing uh, product that came out. It was called I think it was called Bibco. And it basically just came in these five gallon buckets and it was paint. And you would paint like flat roofs, like commercial buildings that had um, uh, flat roofs. You would just paint this um, material on the roof, and the 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 pitch was that it's like a a polyurethane membrane that seals your roof, and um, and it basically is just like a giant tarp that you pour under the roof, and then you don't have any roof leaks. And uh, so instead of paying you know twenty thousand dollars for a new roof or whatever. Um, or a hundred thousand for a new roof or a big commercial building, you'd pay fifty thousand. And we would basically just go on the roof and and um, and with rollers and and uh, and like paint rollers and just roll this stuff out. And um, it was like this brand new revolutionary roofing product. Well, sure enough, after you know two or three years of uh, L.A. weather, Los Angeles weather. Um, this stuff would just dry up and blow away. <laughs> this whole roof, you'd come back two years later later, and there wouldn't be a speck of it on the roof. It would literally just wow. flake. It would dry up, and it would flake, and then it would blow away. And oh. I think that was – I'm not sure because I was little when all – this was like 19 – in the early 80s. I want to say like 83, 84, 85, okay. somewhere in there, mid, early, mid-80s. And um, so I think what happened was sheer roofing uh, took a hit when that happened. And so then Tommy, um, he sold or closed sheer roofing and he um, started doing other stuff, flipping cars and stuff like that. And my dad um, still worked at the, the, the company actually just changed to a new company called GQ roofing, which was good and quick. <laughs> and, uh, and there was another Scientologist who owned it. His name was Chuck Vice. And he was an insane alcoholic, which my mom dated and lived with. And um, one of her, you know, 47 boyfriends that she had when I was a kid. Um, and hey, she was living life. She was living life. And then um, my dad, even though I think he worked for Chuck and he also uh, worked for Tommy as well. And he also flipped cars with Tommy. So Tommy had a house out in the valley. I want to say in the Sun Valley uh, yeah. area somewhere. 
that's where his company is today. Oh, it is. Oh, well, there yeah. you go. He probably still lives in the same damn house. Um, and um, they and he and he liked RX uh, Mazda RX sevens. So he had a Mazda RX seven, and then he would buy salvage RX sevens. And then my dad was a mechanic, and my dad would like put a new this or change this or fix that or whatever the car needed. They would do that to the cars, and then they just resell them. And yeah. um, I remember that um, one time they had this black RX-7 that was a, the story was that it was a drug dealer's car. And after a long police chase, the drug dealer drove it to Malibu into the, basically onto the beach and then ran away. It got stuck. Yeah. And, and this car was full of sand. Like it had, uh, you know, like all of the floorboards, all of the bottom Everything in the car had like six inches of sand in it. Wow! And um, and I've and I and, it, and since I was I would help my dad on the weekends and if I could after school or whenever I could kind of make some money I would work with him. And so him and Tommy had me vacuuming out this RX seven for like I think it took me a whole weekend. I can't remember. I remember it was many days of, of me in a shop vac in that RX seven. And um. And so, yeah, and Tommy at the time, I remember, I, and I didn't know if that might have been why they were friends, but because my dad was a musician, he was a bass player, sometimes they jam, and, um, and every once in a while, um, Tommy would sing. And it never, it was always, to me, it was just, it wasn't my, it wasn't my style of, of music that I liked, but... Um, he kind of sounded like one of the Bee Gees, like he was doing a Bee Gees cover. Was he doing like a falsetto? Oh no, that's the way he sings. He oh sings like the the Brothers Gibb man. Um, it's kind of a high, um, kind of nasally sound that he has. Okay. When he sings. Okay. Right. Um, but the other thing that that um, kind of. Ch- like, I don't know, uh, it got my attention. So it's when you posted that video, I don't know why and I don't know how, but like two weeks before that, um, somebody else, and it might have been the same person that tipped you off, somewhere posted a video of this guy talking. And as soon as I saw him, I'm like, I know that guy, but he looks really different. He used to be really chubby when I knew him. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. He was never, he was... You know, he had a, a good sized gut and he had a lot of meat on the bone and he was just like a um he was just like a kind of a chubby guy. He wasn't fat, but he wasn't thin. You would never right. you would never right. um describe him as thin. And when I saw this video, I was like, Oh my god, I know that guy, but I think he's like lost like a hundred pounds. And um and the other thing, but the thing that made it so I totally knew it was him was his teeth. This yeah. had the most jacked up teeth. And my dad's teeth were pretty jacked up too, and um, and and that's why I thought maybe it might have been something in the water at Tony's house. But um, uh, anyway, um, so when I saw the video, and Tommy is going on and on and on about um, what does he say in there about suppressives? Basically, he starts reading right. all these things about suppressives. So I couldn't help. I was like, "Oh, dude, I'm gonna tell you some stuff." And, um, and so let me and let me just explain. So so yeah, I mean he he went into this. He's now put up like seven different videos about Scientology. He's on a roll. Uh, and once his readers, I guess, got wind of it, he had felt like he had to explain himself. But what I found interesting about that video was that it was such it was just sort of the the the, the sort of PR spin from Scientology, which is you know you would think a guy who's uh, who's a self-published author? Who, who whose books, I guess, has something to do with um, you know, sort of mystical events? You'd think he'd want to sort of level with his readers a little bit more, but it was just he was just spouting PR from Scientology. And you let me know that you had written him this lengthy response, uh, reminding him that you knew him from when you were young, and also uh, saying, "Look." you had been in 
literally in base and worked directly with David Miscavige. And so you could tell him what really went on. So there was this really nice lengthy, I think it was even in two parts, comment under his video. But I just checked and that's gone now. Apparently he, he took it off, eh? Well, I checked as well and it was gone. But I'm actually, I just looked just now and it's there. Oh, it is. Okay. I couldn't find it. I don't know why I couldn't find it, but I, I could not find it. It was not there. And now it's there. He hasn't replied um, and let me just and let me just point out that I did email Tommy that first day once once uh, Mark and I talked and I thought we might do something I did I emailed him I don't know a week and a half or two weeks ago and uh, I did email him at his roofing business and he has not responded so we did want to I did I really did want to see what his reaction was to your lengthy response but he hasn't said anything publicly. Yeah, he hasn't said anything. And um, the funny thing is that, so he has, um, let me just pull it back up here because I had it just a second ago. He has like, let's say 15 videos up on his site. Yeah. And um, maybe 14, maybe a little less than that. But um, they all have, let's say between, you know, 50 and like 10,000 views. One of them's got like 26,000 or something like that. Um, but then he has one song video that has a million views. He'll never forget. He'll always regret. Trapped in a maze. It has a million views. And then that's what I was like, I thought to myself, like, wow, that's a lot of views for his videos. But then all the other videos are, you know, anywhere from, like I said, like 50 to, you know, 25,000 or 26,000 or whatever. But, right. uh, but yeah, and, 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 and I, I couldn't believe that he lost all that weight. And, and also, um, I think, oh, you know what? And the video that has a million views is a song. I just looked at that just now. It's actually a song. It's not a, right. it's not a rant. So um, I haven't listened to it. I, I don't know if I dare, but I bet you if you listen to it, it's going to sound. You, well, I will make sure and drop a little sample of it into the it's podcast. It's going to be Bee Gees-esque when you hear okay. it. Unless, okay. Unless his style, his style, I mean, his style could have changed. This was 1980, you know, five when I knew him, so. Um, his voice and his music stylings um, could have changed over the last, you know, whatever that is. Well, years. he does promote Scientology in the overtly in the um, you know comments uh, or additional information of that song. I wonder if Scientology has helped promote it. Um, I, I don't know about that. I mean, I mean, I, I, I literally do not know, but um, I doubt it. It'd be interesting to find out how he's gotten a million views on that when, like you said, the rest are just very small. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I always thought um, was just a little bit odd about uh, Tommy is that I don't think he ever did much in Scientology when at, in the 80s. So um, when you're in Scientology and you're active, that's like all you do. Like as soon as the workday is over, you go to course or you go get auditing at the Scientology organization near you. And so when I was a kid, my mom spent every waking moment not at work at the Scientology Center. Like she was there every single night of the week uh, when uh, during the school week or work week for us or her. And... Um, and so as soon as we got out of school, she would pick us up. We would eat somewhere like Kentucky Fried Chicken or something fast. And then she would go to course. And course started at 7. And I think it went to, I want to say it went to like 1030, uh, 1045. And then she'd come home and then go to sleep. That was it. For, my, for, for pretty much our entire childhood, that's how it went. Right. Um, and... So, and that's pretty much how any Scientology family, if, you're, if your parents are active, they're actually going to the organization uh, at least five nights a week out of seven days. You have to attend five to get wow. your 
amount of study in that you're supposed to get in in a week. And um, and so when and Tommy lived out in Sun Valley and there's no Scientology organization out there in the in the 80s. Um, and so um, he I never, ever heard saw he never talked about it it was like one of those things like oh he's a quote-unquote scientologist but he's not doing anything in scientology which was a lot of people were like that and that's kind of how my dad was able to work with these guys is because he lived my dad lived across the street from the celebrity center and he was in a band and one of the members two of the members of the band were in scientology one of um that Steve Smuck guy was a Scientologist. And then the other member of the band, uh, the drummer, Thad Korea, was Chick Korea's son. So he was oh. in Scientology. Um, and the other, then there's one other member of the band, uh, the guitarist and um, uh, another a singer. Um, he was not in Scientology. So my dad and him kind of hung out and then um, the other guys were doing whatever they were doing, but they would play gigs at the celebrity center. So even though two of them weren't Scientologists, it was kind of like everybody kind of thought they were, or they weren't against it. So it was kind of like, whatever. Um, and I think early on, my dad figured out if he was gonna be able to see my sister and I, then he had to kind of play nice because they were, you know, scorched earth on parents that, were against Scientology when one of the other ones was in it. It was kind of like, oh, you get a divorce and you move away and you never see that person ever again. So, and because I went to a Scientology school, I would see that all the time. Um, my One of the kids that I went uh, to school with was a girl named Jamie Wasserman. And her dad was a big time lawyer for uh Scientology and did a lot of stuff. Another girl I went to school with was Angie Veneer and her dad was Merrill Veneer. And when he uh, went sideways, uh, that was a big thing. So we was that saw Angie LeClaire. Is that Angie LeClaire that you Angie knew? LeClaire. That's exactly the right. same. That is one and the same. So right. we, so we, it was, I could see what happened when the dad, uh, you know, went sideways on Scientology uh, that you never saw the dad ever again. Um, so Ken Wasserman, Merrill Veneer, there's probably another 20 examples if I just sat down and thought about it. But um, so so the fact that now so Tommy did never really seem like that big of a Scientologist and he he wasn't um, he didn't have a lot of money. Um, and that's usually how you could uh, you could kind of separate the Scientologists is the ones that had money and that were successful. They spent a lot of money and a lot of time in Scientology and the ones that didn't have money and were working a nine to five job and, you know, doing whatever, um, they were tired when they weren't working, they weren't going to go to the org and, and they didn't have any money anyway. So, um, and that my mom was kind of like right in the middle. She was, we weren't wealthy at all. Um, but she spent every penny and every se extra second she had on Scientology. So, wow. um, so we might've, we might've been okay, but she wasn't spending money on, you know, place to live or food or clothes, or she was spending money on Scientology. So, mm -hmm. um, anyway, so when I saw the video a few weeks before you had posted one, I saw something and I thought, Oh, look at Tommy. And I was like, Oh, he's like, Oh, I'm all about Scientology. I was like, sure you are. Sure you are, Tony. <laughs> sure you are, Tommy. Um, you, you where and then he and then he was saying um the zenu the zenu stuff was nonsense and that somebody had made that up or something he was commenting on it saying it that has no basis in reality you have the anti-social personalities who are running the media who pick out bad things about scientology and also this thing i heard he said what about zenu you know zenu you, you think you're out of your minds you know I haven't been Scientology since 1978, about, or seven. I don't even know who Zeno is. I think I may have run into that somewhere, but it's so obscure. And to pretend that this is what Scientology is, is a misdirection. 
And I thought to myself, well, you haven't gotten that far, which is kind of crazy because, you know, I knew you were in Scientology at least since the early 80s. And now it's, you know, 2022 and you still don't know about Xenu. Um, but then in one of somebody pointed out, somebody sent me a message because I had said, you know, the Xenu stuff, da, da, da. And they said, no, he he's OT8. Well, I did. Uh, he apparently he says that somewhere else, and I did find, uh, and and maybe he was just quiet about it, Mark, and didn't you guys didn't hear it? Maybe that's why he's making up for it now, and he's making so much noise. Was that in the 1988 copy of Source magazine, he was listed as completing OT six. Okay, so maybe he he did it, but so then so here's the thing. If he's if he never got to OT three, then he would never know about the Xenu stuff. But if he's if if there's a magazine saying he's OT six, then he one hundred percent knows about the Xenu stuff, and then he's lying saying it doesn't exist. So it's kind of a double edged sword for Scientologists if they say they don't know what Xenu is because they're not allowed to say it. They're not even allowed to say the word Xenu within Scientology. That's like a you could be declared for talking about Xenu and Scientology. It's and a, let me just let me just real quick for the folks who may not be up on all this lingo uh, in Scientology, uh, the counseling you go through is called auditing. It is a past life counseling where you are asked to remember things that happened to you hundreds, thousands, millions, even billions of years ago here on Earth or other planets. And um, through your initial years of Scientology, you're always asked to remember what you can about your life, and you're never told what you should remember until you reach something called Operating Thetan Level 3, or OT3 for short, which happens years after you started, and you've probably sunk hundreds of thousands of dollars in already. And on OT3, it's revealed to you that L. Ron Hubbard, in his own handwriting, has some history of the galaxy he wants to tell you that 75 million years ago, there was this galactic overlord named Xenu who ruled a confederation of 76 planets, and that at some point he uh, had an overpopulation problem, and so he took, uh, he knocked out a bunch of people and, and, and stored them in a glycol mixture Put them in spaceships that look like DC nine airplanes, or I can never remember the number DC eights, whatever. And I think uh, them to. I think there were DC tens, Tony. Please. Okay, your, thank you, Mark. Thank you. And then they, they flew them to a planet called Tigiak, which today we call Earth. Packed them in around the base of volcanoes, and then obliterated them with H bombs. Captured their souls with an electronic device. Uh, their souls that in Scientology are called Thetans and then subjected them to weeks of uh, 3D movies to uh, indoctrinate them and plant various ideas, including the world's religions, such as uh, Jesus and Muhammad and all that. And that those are just all false memories that Xenu placed in all of us 75 million years ago. This is the wild. And remember, up to this point, Scientologists are never told what to remember about the past. They're always asked what are their memories about the past. And then the very first time this is told, in, in OT3, suddenly Hubbard has this bizarre story, backstory about Xenu. And so what Mark is saying is right, that if you haven't yet gotten to OT3, you should never have heard the name Xenu in Scientology and wouldn't know what people are talking about. And then once you have been in, on OT3 and you revealed this information literally in a locked briefcase in a, in a secret, you know, in an office nobody can go into, once you're finally exposed to this information, you are sworn never to tell another Scientologist about it or risk being what Mark said, declared, which is essentially excommunicated and all other Scientologists would have to cut off contact with you. So very serious stuff. So here's Tommy on his video saying he's never heard of, of Xenu. And so when I wrote about this, I said, well, to be fair, if he hasn't achieved OT3 yet, he wouldn't know. But like I said, I found a record that he definitely did at least OT6. He apparently has also told people he's OT8. And as Mark says, there's absolutely no way he has not heard about Xenu in Scientology. He's simply lying about it. Yeah. 
So, so in my post, in the basically the the response I did to his video, I basically told him, "Hey, this is where, you know, this is a whole bunch of stuff about suppressives and." You know, basically every single person that L. Ron Hubbard ever worked with um, ended up turning, getting declared a suppressive person, including his kids and his wife, and, you, know, you know, everything else. So uh, even Hubbard didn't have a clue about suppressives, obviously, because he was surrounded by them and worked with them his entire life. But um, but then on the on the Xenu thing, I had remembered many, many years ago, um, I was I can't remember. I think it was at a convention or something. And somebody mentioned Zemu, not Zenu, but Zenmu, uh, uh, X-E-N-M-U. And I thought that was really weird because in one of the Hubbard lectures where he, one of the OT documents where he talks about Zenu, he spells it two different ways in the same document. And he even says either Zimu or Zinmu, like he like, well, it's either one or the other. It's not two different things. Anyway, there is a comic book, a Marvel comic book that came out in 1960 that has an alien named Zinmu in it. It's yeah. And so I personally think that's where Hubbard stole the idea from. I think a lot of a lot of Hubbard stuff. Um, it's just stuff he lifted from other things. That was Ron Miscavige right. really into um, Ron Miscavige Sr. Um, he was really into finding every single uh, piece of like technology, quote unquote, that L. Ron Hubbard invented or formulated and finding out where he stole it from. And he actually found a ton of stuff, like a ton of early, early, like 1920s and 19 teen, the teen, right. teen teens of books where they talked about exact things that Hubbard talked about um, that just predated Hubbard by, you know, a few decades. So I think Hubbard, I want to say, I don't actually know when the OT documents are from. I think they're from the late 60s or, or the 70s probably. He did the OT3 in, in 66 or 67 when he was in Canary Islands. Yeah. There you go. You know way too much about Scientology. Well, well, and I know about the comic book thing. And the reason I'm skeptical about the comic book thing is that I actually found a use of the word Xenu by Hubbard in 1958. Oh, you did? And, yes, it's a very strange thing. But in a lecture he gave in 1958, he referred to a Mount Xenu. And it was transcribed with the same spelling, X-E-N-U. And I talked about this with John Atak, and he just thought... He, he um, here's here's a, uh, a bizarre, I'm going to try to read a little bit of this, the way Hubbard said it in this lecture. He said, "Bulletin of War, Space Command, Planet X, New figure, 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 figure. Think, 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 think. Figure, 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 figure. That's the kind of stuff he would um, rattle off in a lecture. Uh, and then a little later, he says, "Order of the Day, Monastery Platitude, Mount Zenu, There shall be peace." You know, I mean, it's he and John Atack would point out that says he thinks that. He just had certain phrases in his head, and he would throw them around. And it, that's probably all it was, is that he had used that phrase, that sound, Xenu, once in 1958, and then just repeated it again in 1966 when he came up with mm -hmm. OT3. Well, and then in, I'm, and still then sticking, I'm still sticking with my Marvel you, story. because You stick with the comic book. but in, yeah. And then in 1968 is the lecture you're talking about. It's called the Assists Lecture that he gave on the – the ship, the Apollo, where he was telling this story out loud for yeah. the first time to his own crew and described um, that it could be spelled either X-E-N-U or X-E-M-U. Yeah, so that's and the there, part to me that kind of lends to this other idea because that other guy, it's, it is spelled with an M and an N. And then the people in people in Britain, Scientologists in Britain, tend to use the M spelling, X E M U. People in America tend to use X E N U. And 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 there has been some debate about you know is one of them right? And I will point out that when he wrote his screenplay, Revolt in the Stars, yeah. in nineteen seventy seven, yeah, when he actually finally committed this to paper, he used the spelling. 
with X-E-N-U throughout that screenplay. Okay. There you go. Crazy. Yeah. So the other thing is that the Zemu guy in the comic books, just so we know, everybody knows what happened to him, is he was defeated by Iron Man as one of the, you know, people. So we could see Zemu could show up in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know. That would be great. Um, great. Anyway, that would be amazing because then what are they going to (laughs) do? And also, Zemu was from another planet, and he could um, he could hypnotize you. So I don't know. Just some uh, some weird parallels that uh, Lord Zemu and the other the uh, Marvel Zem Zemu guy had. Um, well, we know we know Tommy was lying about that. We know that he knows about Zemu. Yes, of um, course he does, and that's why. But then, what I also was impressed by your response was you really took the time to explain to him that uh, things that he he couldn't know himself. He he Tommy wouldn't know what's going on at the base or the things that you saw. Sure. So you took you took the time. I did. Uh, tell our listeners what are some of the things that you explained to him to help him try to see that he was spreading false information about Scientology. Well, one of the things um, I've actually been decently successful, um, you know, when people, I've gotten a few people out of Scientology by just telling them stuff that went on at the M base. Wow. And one of the things that really sort of kind of rocks the world is that at, at the at the international headquarters of Scientology, they don't use Scientology. Huh. Like they almost don't believe in Scientology. That's a great point. I hadn't heard that before. That's you're absolutely right. So things that and this was really um, I'll I'll give you a great example is that when um, when Leah first was leaving Scientology. Um, she was talking to Mike Rinder. She was talking to me. She was talking to a, a, a bunch of different people. She hadn't, I don't think at the time that I was talking with her, she had come out, you know, so to speak. She hadn't told the world that she's not in Scientology anymore. Right. Um, but she would tell, but I would tell her things that would go on or she would say, tell me things. And I would be like, oh, who gives a shit that that person did this or that? And she goes, oh, but that's not per the policy. And she would always say, that's not per the LRH policy. That's doesn't, that's not, um, that's not standard. And, and I would, and it would always make me laugh. Like you, so sh- as a, a Scientologist, that's not working for Scientology, um, you're beat, it's beat into you. Like what did, what does LRH say you should do? What is this? What is that? And in science within Scientology, it's, it's, it's like the wild, wild west. Like nobody gives a shit. Nobody. It's like, we have to get this done and we're going to get it done any way possible. And the last thing that we're worried about is what's the policy? Like it's, (laughs) it's literally like, it's, it's laughable. So she would keep saying this. And I, I was like, Leah, those policies are for you. They're not for the people in, that work in Scientology. Wow. They're the members to keep you in line. At, but at the at the headquarters, we do whatever the fuck we want. And and that is and one of those things is blowing all of your money. So at the Ant base, um, we would do basically we were building buildings and we were building roads and at that big property it's like 500 i think it's 550 acres or almost 600 yes. acres it's a lot it's right. a big property yeah. yeah but um a lot of times we would not hire professionals to build the buildings that, that there might be like a contractor who like pulls a permit or um there was a guy actually that was he was uh, he wasn't a sea org member but he came to the property and he was the guy who would kind of be the go-between between the city and um, Scientology. And he would help get the permits and he would help hire maybe a certain contractor or a certain firm that was licensed to do a certain trade. And then that person would basically be told, 
um, you need to utilize our people to do this work, even though we're not trained at all to do that work. And so a lot of the buildings on the property were built by the Sea Org members that worked at the property um, with, under, you know, quote unquote, supervision. And sometimes those guys didn't give a shit what we did. And sometimes they just freaked out the full, the entire time. Like, no, you're doing that wrong. You got to do this. You got to. So we basically, the, the, the bottom line is we rebuilt and we redid a lot of things on a lot of buildings because they were either not up to code or um, they were going to fall down once we got inside them or, you know, whatever it was. But I would say during the 15 years that I was there, um, I could probably document about $50 million that we wasted. Just completely just pissed away. Just just useless. Just we spent it and it was either we spent, you know, millions of dollars doing something that was just never used or we spent millions of dollars and then tore the entire thing down or and that's that's not just on buildings. That's on video products, on on films, on all. We shot a movie. We actually shot an entire Dianetics um, infomercial with Grant Cardone. Oh. Yeah. We spent months shooting a documercial or infomercial with Grant Cardone as the main narrator. I actually even... Um, David Miscavige did not want to use Grant Cardone. He thought Grant Cardone was a slimy car sales guy. And he wanted to use Michael Roberts or uh, Michael Fairman to be the narrator. <laughs> and um, and I actually kind of, um, I almost got in really big trouble because I said, uh, yeah, we're not going to use those guys. And everybody was like, uh, COB just said we're going to use Michael Roberts or Michael Fairman. And you just told him no. And um, and he actually basically kind of um, called me out and said, OK, uh, MFR, if you want to use Grant Cardone, go to Riverside College and have Grant Cardone uh, read the script, like a two minute section of the script, Michael Fairman and Michael Roberts. They all have to read the exact same thing as if they're the narrator and show it to college students and whichever ones the college students pick, that's who we're going to use. And that'll and be so like, you did that. Yeah, we, we did. We recorded Michael Fairman, Michael Roberts and Grant Cardone saying this little video. I remember we had to track down Grant Cardone was in Ohio and we had to track down a cameraman to go to his hotel wherever he was at in Ohio and video him saying this exact script section and then edit it and get it all. And then we went, we took laptops and we went all, we went to, um, I guess it's Riverside, uh, UC Riverside actually. And we went to UC Riverside and um, for like, I want to say like maybe two or three days, we just showed kids these videos and we said, which one do you like the best? And, um, fucking grant cardone fucking blew those other two dudes away like if we did like let's say we did 2000 we showed 2000 kids uh grant got like 1500 so um it didn't help that um you know michael fairman was uh, a lot older and um and michael roberts has mortgage eyes so <laughs> Like one's variable and one's fixed. Um, and so, yeah, so Grant won. Uh, and Grant is is a kind of like a slimy car salesman. <laughs> he still is to this day. Um, but anyway. Well, we, and I, if I'll, I'll point out that, that several years ago, I think, I think Miscavige is ambivalent about Cardone to this day because – uh, there's no doubt Grant Cardone has a huge following on social media. He's very good at sort of hamming it up on camera. Yeah. And um, several years ago, um, he came to the L.A. org to do some kind of a event. And I got a copy of the newsletter just gushing about how amazing it was with fo photographs showing the place was completely full. And I wrote about that saying, look, it's interesting. Grant Cardone can fill a room, all right? Now, 
And, and I don't know why David Miscavige doesn't use him more because this might be one of the very few things that today could actually put people in a room for a Dianetics pitch is, is Grant Cardone. But the fact that Miscavige doesn't use him that more that way suggests perhaps that he's still ambivalent about it. Well, there's a lot, there was a ton of stuff. So, so I say, let's use Grant. He says, no way. I don't like that guy. Da, 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 da. And then I say, well, I think we should use him. That was kind of whatever. We do the thing. We then, uh, and that was basically like, everybody was like, Mark, you are a motherfucker. Do not gloat. Uh, like they knew that I was going to be like, I was like, Oh, you know, I'm going to shove this up Dave's ass. I'm going to, I'm going to be like, Oh, like who has got the pulse of America? You or me, uh, me. Thank you very much. Anyway, but, uh, anyway, so, um, so we sent it back up and he was basically like, okay, you know, like a deal's a deal kind of thing. Um, so we shot this thing. We did makeup tests. We did costume tests we it was like we spent probably two months trying to figure out which leather jacket he was going to wear in the in the in the document in the infomercial i mean it it was it was insane the amount of nonsense that went on and then um and then we shot it and we had to build we build a set we shot it we did all this stuff it went through editing forever and ever and the thing never ever saw the light of day. I think they showed like a clip of it at an event, like, oh, coming up is going to be this amazing Dianetics infomercial because that is, maybe a lot of people don't know this, but um, when those Dianetic volcano ads ran, they sold a ton of books, a ton of Dianetics books. And so then when infomercials were all the rage, we, we shot Dianetics infomercials we called them documercials because it was like a documentary and an infomercial (laughs) um it was a goddamn infomercial hate to break it to anybody in scientology anyway but um we sold a lot of uh we had like a kit i think what was it called it was called the dianetics how-to kit it had a dianetics book it had a dianetics how-to video um and it had like all the materials and everything you need so that you and another person could get this kit, read the Dianetics book, watch the Dianetics how-to video, and you could audit Dianetics. And we sold, we sold a lot of those kits. Like I, I want to say, of maybe a hundred thousand, maybe more. So there was press. There was precedent for putting this stuff out and trying to bring people in. Yeah. But for some reason, the Cardone project, even though you spent a ton of money, never was released, as far as you know. Yeah, and I and and really at the end, I think basically like if Dave says something is some way and you prove it's not that way, he will eventually prove that it is the way he said it was. So right. I really at the end of the day think that he just never liked Cardone. He never wanted him as the narrator. And even though we shot the whole thing and we produced the whole thing, he still just didn't want Gar- Grant Cardone being the guy. And I to my in my heart of hearts i think david miscavige um thinks that grant cardone is competition that's what i genuinely believe that's interesting grant cardone lives the life that david miscavige wishes he could leave yeah live and um and the other thing is that and this is a hilarious story is so grant came to the base grant came to the imp base and he was at the base for you know weeks and weeks um, when we were shooting with him and doing costume tests and um, makeup tests and all that different stuff. And I'm pretty sure that Dave and him spoke and they met and they spoke and they talked and then it was whatever. And Grant Cardone uh, will uh, blow smoke up Dave's ass every chance he gets and how awesome Dave Miscavige is and everything else. Okay, so then Dave goes to Florida and he is at the um, the Fort the Flag Land Base at the Fort Harrison at one of the dining rooms there, and he sees Grant and he looks over at him and Grant doesn't even give him the time of day. Doesn't oh. look at him, doesn't get up, doesn't say hi, nothing. Like like David Miscavige doesn't even exist. And Dave Miscavige 
fucking lost his shit. He gets back to the base and he was like, you better find out what that Grant Cardone motherfuckers got going on because I saw him at flag and he didn't even fucking acknowledge my presence. Wow. Anyway, it was a huge flap. Anyway, so I think either I called up Grant or one of the talent people called up Grant because once you're like in a film or a movie, then kind then now gold is kind of your wrangler, not celebrity center. You get kind of turned over to gold and gold has to figure out what's going on you with you. And then you might they might we might coordinate with celebrity center and say, hey, uh, COB went to flag. He met Grant. Uh, he saw Grant. Grant didn't say anything. COB, you know. Or, or Grant needs to be pulled in and find out what his out ethics are. Da, 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 da. Anyway, we get a hold of Grant. Grant's in fucking uh, in Hollywood. He's been in Hollywood for fucking the last four months. He ain't at fucking flag. Um, Grant, oh, I know what happened. Grant has a twin brother named he has a twin Gary brother. Cardone. And That's Gary right. Cardone's at flag doing Scientology auditing. And he ain't never met David Miscavige. And he doesn't know who the fuck David Miscavige is. Oh, um, wow. Anyway, so it was like basically like so there's so many times where Dave like basically was like, fuck this guy. And then no matter what, it's no, it's not fuck this guy. You're wrong. He's a better narrator. Oh, no, 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 no. Fuck this guy. That wasn't Grant, you dumb motherfucker. That was his brother, Gary, his twin brother that looks just <laughs> like him. So how OT are you? You don't even know that's not Grant. Anyway, so the fact that Grant was like later on, um, so this is in the early 2000s, late, late 2000s, early 2000s, kind of when Grant's getting into Scientology. Yeah. There's a lot of other stories we could tell about Grant, some that are very, very um, not, uh, not friendly, uh, not safe for work friendly. Um, the things that happened at the base. Maybe we could talk about that another time. But, wow, um, we might have to. Yeah, yeah it's pretty like insane craziness um anyway but um when i got out in 2005 and i went to i went to get a buy a car i had no credit i had nothing i couldn't get a car um finally when we moved out to la um i went to go buy a car and i was talking to the sales guy and i was like you know you're really good at this um like how do you get to be really good at car sales like that and he goes oh there's one guy who's like the most amazing like um, trainer who can tell you how to sell cars and all this. I was like, oh, what's his name? He's like, Grant Cardone. And I was like, oh, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> and so in 2005, 2006, that's basically what all Grant was doing was just going to car dealerships and having these conventions where he would train car salesmen on how to sell cars. Well, that's his, I mean, that's his big thing is, is he is a motivational speaker for people in sales and uh, focusing a lot on real estate, but selling anything really. And uh, I mean, my own observation is that, um, and also when I first started writing about him, he's, he's married to this woman, Elena, who was an actress who had gotten into some sort of involvement with um, a Milton Katzelis, the, well, yeah. the drama that's, teacher. That's one of and, the stories there. They kind of all weave in and out of the Milton thing. And Grant, and I first started writing about him because Grant, uh, after after Katzelis died, his former partner, uh, Alan Barton, told me the story about how Grant was really sent in to uh, torment Katzelis on behalf of David Miscavige. Yeah. Because and- Katzelis, Katzelis had kind of moved away from the church. So that's how we first, at the, at, at the Village Voice, that's how I first became aware of Grant Cardone was that he was an enforcer. He was a bully for the Church of Scientology, who at that time had gotten a reality show with the National Geographic Channel. Yeah. Um, and well, now he's even the- bigger. I mean, he's, he's, he does he, – the guy, there's no question, has the social media empire. I, I still perceive that Miscavige was kind of he, keeping him at arm's length until relatively recently uh, in a recent Impact magazine – really featured Cardone in the front row at an event. So I think Miscavige has finally, you know, gotten, well, I mean, Cardone's given him a lot of money. Well, yeah. And that's the other thing is it's funny to me that Grant Cardone is a loyal soldier because at every chance, David Miscavige is like, fuck that guy. And 
but Grant's like, no, 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 no. I'm going to, I'm, I'm a good soldier. And, and I really genuinely think that Grant Cardone benefits more in the relationship than Scientology does. Hmm. So, because he's getting, and this, and a lot of people don't know this, he's getting a lot of rich Scientologists to invest money with him. And, um, some of it depends on who you who you watch or who you listen to on the internet. But there's some of these um, stock market guys, some of these you know YouTubers that are big into investing and stuff like that. Uh, they they shit on Grant every chance they get. Like it's a scam. He's going to get sued. He's losing your millions of dollars. You know all this kind of stuff. So I don't know. I don't know enough about all the interworkings of Grant stuff, but I do know a lot of behind the scenes stuff. Well, you know, and again, I'll give him credit. He's actually trolled those critics in some interesting ways. I remember at one point when, you know, there was uh, some economic issues going on in the world, he said that he was going down in flames and that he was having to sell his plane and he was in big trouble. He was going to be in prison. And it turned out just to be a big troll. So, I mean, the guy is very aware of what people say about him. Yeah. Um, I don't know what the Grant Cardone story is going to end up. You're right. It, it is interesting. It's It's been fascinating to me for many years what his relationship is to Miscavige and the church uh, and how much of what he does is questionable and whether it's ever going to get him into trouble. But right now, this guy pulls in huge audiences at, at, at arenas and – has big names signing on to what he's doing. Um, so, I mean, Miscavige can't divorce himself completely because the guy's just bringing in tons of money. Yeah. And that's the, th- I mean, I know that um, there's some, there's possibly some connections between um, that guy, uh, Bob Duggan and Grant and possibly a guy named Tom Cummins. There's a bunch of kind of like wealthy. Uh, the big whales. Yeah, big Scientology whales, and they're all down in Florida. And that's kind of, you know, uh, that's Grant's stopping ground. He made a ton of money in Miami. Um, and that's, and th- there's a lot of, yeah, there's stories about that too. Like when he basically, when he came, when you, if you're an actor and you want to come and work for Golden Era Productions, you have to get what's called a security check. Uh, it's basically an interrogation on the e-meter, Scientology's e-meter. And you got to tell all your deep, deepest, darkest secrets so we can tell if you're going to be able to come to the property or not. And if you're going to be a like a, basically if you're going to be a problem in the future, we want to know about it. And, wow. and a lot of stuff came up during that. And that's if you're if you're working Golden Era and you're over the talent department, then you find out about all that kind of stuff because it's in all Jeez. the reports. And um, yeah, his early, early financial beginnings are definitely um, very, uh, problematic and, um, and how he kind of jump-started his real estate portfolio. Well, and let's just bring it back. I mean, the reason why Cardone came up is you wanted to give an example of, of a big waste of donor yeah, money. Exactly. It was spent on this, spent on this project and starring him, which never saw the light of day. But I want to get back to where we were because the, the really interesting thing that you said was that this has been effective in 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 sort of disrupting for some Scientologists their thinking to yeah. point out that okay and you know we've been talking about this place alternately called Int or Gold which is this international management headquarters compound which is about ninety miles east of Los Angeles that David Miscavige has apparently forsaken now and just never yeah. goes there anymore. One hundred. But for Everything many years that they was- did at that property. Now, it, every possible thing that was done at that property, every function is now performed at another location. There's no function that that property serves. But the, but what I found interesting is that for a long time, that was the center of the Scientology universe. Yeah. But 95% of Scientologists could never even hope to go near the place yeah. because the, the idea was you not only had to be in the Sea Org and sign this billionaire Sea Org contract, but that only the cream of the crop of the Sea Org were allowed to go there, so yeah. that so that so that I you would so I think what you were getting at is that your typical Scientologist maybe they look around and see that their mission is not doing very well or their org is not doing very well, and virtually every Scientologist I've ever talked to 
has has brought up those things that you said Leah did that that they saw things that were out of policy and it bothered them. Yeah. But I would imagine that all of these Scientologists around the country, around the world, all would think to themselves, gosh, but at the int base at gold, that's where Scientology really works. Where exactly. Everyone's a Scientologist. Everyone's a Sea Org, not only Sea Org, but the top of the top of all the orgs. And this is the one place on earth that's just pure Scientology. And so when you come to them and say, well, let me tell you what it was really like there, which was what you did in that that response to Tommy Scherer, yeah. is you said, you know, how dysfunctional the place was. And we've heard from other people about, you know, David Miscavige physically beating people. And to, to maybe to, to me, that's not that shocking, but to a Scientologist, this is where Scientology perfection is supposed to be going on. How could the Pope of Scientology be beating people? Yeah. Now I, I can see how how that would be effective well, the, in waking some people up. The, the way the way the Scientology brainwash, brainwashing system works is that as soon as you attack Scientology, the sorry, I just hit my microphone. As soon as you hit uh, attack Scientology, the person shuts off. Like, nope, I can't receive any more information from you. And they're, that's right. the way they're programmed. If you tell them about things that go on inside of, you know, I'm not attacking Scientology. I'm telling you that these people at this place don't give a shit about Scientology technology. They do whatever the hell they want. We wasted all that money you gave us. We flushed it down the toilet. And that they start to see, well, that makes a lot of sense now that my the Scientology organization that is down the street from me is always an empty carcass. There's nobody there doing anything. And the, the, it starts to kind of make the wheels turn and it, they will at least analyze and maybe think about that. If you don't attack L Ron Hubbard or the Scientology technology that you can never, you can never debate a Scientologist about the uh, the efficacy of Scientology. You have to tell them what goes on behind the scenes um, with the people that are running it or what's going on. And that, to me, is a much it, – it's not – it doesn't work all the time, but it works way better than trying to debate whether the e-meter is a crock of shit or – Right, and I, I've talked to – is real or not. You know, that and- – that's yeah. sort of like you're not going to get anywhere with that. But if you say, oh, we blew all that, you know, you oh, you donated eighty thousand dollars. Yeah, that we used we used all of your eighty thousand dollars to fix a video where David Miscavige didn't look good for five seconds. And it cost four hundred and eighty thousand dollars to fix eight seconds of video of him. And one of the greatest monuments to this is Building 50. I, I still, whenever I think about Building 50, I can't believe it. This is this monument built to David Miscavige's ego, his ultra headquarters inside of the headquarters compound at Int Base, where, uh, you know, something like 100 people could be working in there at, at the desks that were created in offices. Yeah. But there were never more than seven or eight people using that building. It, even literally, using it. it literally was the nicest, most expensive property on the entire or a building on the entire int base property. And there was like a handful of people working. Yeah, there. like five or six people working there. And then what was his just his desk alone? Tens of thousands of dollars or something. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, Tony, I. I would go on I would go and say that that building we built for David Miscavige cost more than L Ron Hubbard's mansion which also had huge cost overruns and you know tens and tens of millions of dollars were spent on that mansion I would say we spent more money on the building 50 for David Miscavige which is I think it's smaller than L. Ron Hubbard's mansion. They're both pretty large and they're, they're pretty, pretty close to each other. But yeah. either way, um, yeah, they're just millions and millions and millions of dollars. And I only know about like the stuff that happened at Golden Era. I don't know about, you know, th- that was before I left. So when you leave and you go, oh no, um, David Miscavige spent $25 million on two private investigators to watch um, Pat Broker. And I think I put that in there too. Like that. Yeah, you did. $25 million just for two private investigators. So 
that's uh, there's probably I mean there could be I bet you if everyone made a list you could come up with you know half a billion dollars it's away. incredible it was much, just and then, thrown and, away so this building 50 is this monument to him it never had more than six or seven people working on it and now he's completely abandoned it yeah so it's just sitting there I'm sure nobody ever goes in it and you know what a monument to waste um but I, I, it's interesting to me that that has worked on some people i'm glad you've tried that and it's a shame that uh tommy didn't try to engage in it and i hope maybe some point you'll hear from him yeah maybe I'll hear hopefully from him. two th- i hope two things i hope he gets out of scientology and i hope he fixes those teeth those teeth <laughs> are okay you just can't do youtube videos with a set of chompers like that that's just not a well I can't. I can't. He's trying his best. I'm, I'm He's trying te- to reach the audience. It, you, it, whoever out there, you're like, oh, Mark, that you don't, you shouldn't teeth shame. I'm teeth shaming. Those teeth are not. They're not uh, ready for prime time. They are not. Well, maybe in that way, he's like L. Ron Hubbard, who also that's an, that is a funny thing that somebody did mention that in the comments. They're like, "Oh no, he's a to- he's a total Hubbard believer. Look at those teeth. He doesn't believe in a dentist like Hubbard did." Okay, well, maybe I hope we get a chance to talk to Tommy, and maybe we can help him with a dental bill. But listen, Mark, <laughs> thank you so much, Tommy. You know, sure, go fund me, dentist. Um, <laughs> We ended up all over the place here, but I think we it's did. Fun and-, and we should definitely do another pod where we talk about uh, just crazy int based stories. There's so I, many I love things it. that happen at that place. It would be amazing. I love it. We will definitely do that soon. Oh, Mark, thank you so much, man. Absolutely, dude. Talk to you later. Bye.